Touch them all, Joe. <laughs> Andy Crosby, the golden goal. Welcome to the Backstage Project Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Silver. In this episode, we're joined by Nick Selsky, just days before his daily fantasy sports company, Monkey Knife Fight, was acquired by Bally's. Nick, thanks for joining us today. How are you? I'm great, Mark. Thanks uh, Thanks for having me. I'm a fan of what you're doing right now. I no, appreciate it. I appreciate it. And that's kind of how Nick, Nick found us through, uh, he's got a good connection to Kevin Newman, who we had on the podcast early days. And uh not going to say that Nick called me right away and said, I want to be on the show, but Nick and Nick and I were chatting and, uh, and here we are, Nick, to start off, I, I wanted to hit you with, uh, with, with a personal question, something that you've talked about previously. So, uh, so I know, I know you have kind of a dialogue and a little bit of a narrative to talk about. Hey, I'm an open book. You can ask me whatever you want and I will do my best to answer is in, in, in as entertaining in a way as I can. Well, I'll leave it up to you with this next topic. So I know that you, uh, you're a cancer survivor. C- congratulations on that and, and the Thank fight you. through that. Um, we're not looking to get into your journey through, through that treatment and whatnot for today. What we really want to focus on is how, how it affected you. So I'm going to start with, you know, what did you learn about yourself from that experience? Well, you know, it, it's, it's a good question, Mark. And obviously I've been thinking about this for, for, for years. I, I was di- first diagnosed about 12 years ago and I have non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. So I, I, I like to refer to myself as an H and as, as an NHLer, right? I wasn't good enough to make the, make the national hockey league, but Hey, I get to use that acronym. Um, the thing with, with, with non-Hodgkin's is it's, is it's not a curable form of cancer while it's not an aggressive, um, you know, version of, of that horrible disease. Um, ultimately it's something that I will have to live with my entire life. I've had a number of flare ups. Um, most, you know, uh, I've had three occasions when it's really hit me, uh, twice was dealt with just with radiation. And then I had to have chemo, uh, once. Um, and, you know, because of the nature of, uh, the type of cancer that I have to deal with, because it's something that I have to live with my entire life, um, literally I think about it every day. Um, I think about it multiple times a day. What it's taught me is, you know, I really need to focus on specific moments. I need to really, you know, think through, um, decisions that I make because, um, everything does have consequences, right? I mean, I have changed my diet. I have a very specific, uh, exercise regimen. Um, you know, I, I try and learn, I don't take, I don't take, uh, things that doctors say to me as gospel, um, which has taught me not to believe everything you, you read or hear on the internet and things like that. You know, I've learned to try and educate myself. Um, I ask lots of questions to lots of people, you know, I've, I've always been an open person, but especially when it came to being diagnosed or when I was diagnosed, you know, it, it took me a little while, but then I just started opening up and, and, and asking lots of people their, their, their uh, treatment plans, you know, how they dealt with it psychologically. And that did filter over into the business world where, you know, I mean, geez, I mean, uh, you know, Mark, we, we reconnected after I heard Kevin on your podcast and it was just like, Hey, Mark, let's, let's, let's talk. I'd love to hear what you're talking about, like, or what you're thinking about these days. I think that what it's taught me is, um, 
well, I shouldn't say what it's taught me. It it almost forced me to be even more outgoing than I ever was. And, you know, I, I it pushed me into a life philosophy that I think has helped me in, 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 in business and, and just in life. And I apologize for the swear word, but like I give zero fucks. I don't let things really impact me. I don't over, I, I don't let things overwhelm me because ultimately I have cancer, right? So ultimately when everything, when anything ever gets too stressful, I bring myself back down. And it's like, wait a second, that's not that important, right? Oh, the Raiders didn't make the playoffs. Okay. You know what? It's not that big of a deal. And that's a bad example probably, but I think, you know, uh, that's really the thing that cancer has is ultimately brought to me as, as an ability to, I guess just, it's, it's ironic. It really is ironic. Like I live life. I live life better now after diagnosis than I did before, which is a weird thing to say, but it's, but it's true. Thank you for taking us on the, on that journey with you and, and helping us understand how it changed you and your focus and, and the importance of today. I think with everything that the world is going through right now, that, that kind of outlook is something that I hope other people, other people share, where just live every day to, to its fullest. I mean, when, when I met you, which was a number of years ago, you, you were probably already uh, battling cancer, just thinking back to the timeline. And if we kind of have, I guess, 12 years ago as a little bit of a demarcation point, even prior to that, you, you were a pretty outgoing guy. You were self-starter, creating content. We're not, we're not going to go into all the background today, but if you look at that kind of 12 years ago, kind of the bef- the Nick before and, and the Nick after, as you think about your career and you've done so much just in these last 12 years, was there any specific change that, that, you, that you can identify that, you know, the, the onset of dealing, dealing with um, cancer caused for you? You know what? I, I honestly, I don't, I don't think so. But what's, but it's, it's hard to, it's hard to separate the time of my life when I was diagnosed with cancer um, from when I had it, my first, or my only daughter. So I had my first kid, uh, my only kid, uh, literally a like eight months or nine months before I was diagnosed. So both of those are such major life changes that it's hard to separate what having a child and having a family and having somebody that you really needed to support, you know, on top of being a partner, a good partner and a good wife and a good member of my family and all that sort of thing. But having a little child to think about and then having myself to and, and, and how dealing with the reality of, 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 of cancer had, you know, I, what focus I needed to deal with that. So, you know, to your question, you know, I, I'd love to have a specific answer, but it, it honestly, everything happened at the same time where it's really impossible for me to kind of separate those two, maybe two of the most kind of impactful life events from each other to tell like which one or to tell like how the diagnosis impacted my, my kind of my business trajectory. Um, and that's a, that's, that's a total fair and, and great answer, Nick. And it's, uh, I remember back to my first child and, uh, and I, I didn't have these other, I had more career things to be worrying about at the same time. Like that initial, oh, I'm going to take, you know, two weeks off, uh, you know, right after we, we have the child. And then of course my, my attention is divided. Can't even, 
compare that to what you know, my wife and, and mothers go through as they try and deal with with career through there. But well, but you know what's funny, Mark, and as I'm thinking about this, what's really what's really interesting is when I was first diagnosed was when I was literally building and launching my very first startup called InGamer, which is the reason why we met those those years ago. And then when I got hit, um, when I got hit the last time was September of 2017, and this is when I had to have chemo for the very first time. Um, I started building, we started, I started working with our owner, with, with, with the owner of Monkey Knife by Bill Asher in July of 2017. So literally the two most um, significant kind of non-Hodgkin's moments hit me when my first startup was launching and then when now this um, startup, which has you know been the most success I've had in my career, has launched. So it's it's it, there's there's definitely a a, a non-Hodgkin's through line through my uh, business career. That's for sure. Well, thinking about your career and and we will get to monkey knife fight during our chat today we have to get to monkey knife fight um in gamer thanks for mentioning it yeah that is exactly where where we first met you know i was working for the big bad media company when i was uh overseeing tsn's digital back then and and you were you were had a compelling value proposition um we were at that point i remember it's probably 2013 i'm going to say maybe 2012 uh, we were really struggling with with engagement uh, moving the world from now, I'm going to bring everybody back to 2012. <laughs> I, I, I do this sometimes. We've had you know we've had Steve McAllister on the podcast before. Him and I went went way back, and uh, uh, I also had Chris Skinner uh, on the on the podcast. And again, we go way back. But I think it's important for the audience to kind of recognize that you can turn the clock back to 2012, even 2010. Um, you know, this is Facebook has still not come into its own as a uh, as a place where digital media buying existed as that kind of it became the second screen and media companies were always looking for new assets to sell to sponsors new reasons to put promotions in broadcast and and Endgamer was that um i don't i don't remember exactly how successful you were in uh, in getting media partnerships maybe without going completely into the Endgamer product and, and how successful was that was that startup for you so in hindsight, I learned, I learned a ton. Uh, the, the, the startup ultimately was, was, was fairly successful. You, you, you know, your, uh, your media uh, mothership was the only one in Canada that we didn't work with. We were the official partner of Hockey Night in Canada over at CBC. We worked with Rogers and, and Sportsnet. Uh, we never cracked the bell, uh, the bell nut, which is ironic because the idea all got started um, at TSN when I was doing off the record and um, the idea kind of percolated with a, uh, with a uh, member of the, the off the record production crew. Um, but what I learned was that as great of an idea is if there isn't a business model that actually fits for all parties, well, you're not going to, it's going to be a much harder road to succeed. Um, the problem that we faced with InGamer, and I won't get into the nuts and bolts of what the product was, but it was a it was a real time uh, fantasy sports game that you could play while you're watching the game on TV. But it was a free to play product. So when you're selling a free to play product, and um, as as a company, 
you're not depending on um, or you're not able to generate revenue from direct to consumer, you're relying on a media company to pay a license fee. Ultimately, um, no matter how great an idea is, a media company still has to sell the rights to that product to a sponsor. A sponsor might love an idea, but what a sponsor's paying for is eyeballs. So there's a vicious circle there. If you're a startup that's relying on a license fee from a media company to survive, stop. You're going to fail. I mean, fail is fail is 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 a word that people that people interpret in negative ways, but actually it's not. Failing is not Failing is a good thing. You learn more from failures than you do from successes. I mean, everyone, you know, many people have said that before. Um, unless you, as a startup, if your business model is reliant on uh, generating license fees from a media partner, um, unless you bring eyeballs to the table, unless you already have users, you can't expect a media company to both pay a license fee to you and also help you build up those users unless you're willing to give them a significant portion of your company. Yeah, and that's um, and that's that's exactly what I mean. the media companies here in Canada haven't really, well, specifically, let's let's call it sports media endeavors, have not been doling out money to startups. No. Um, no. In, in the U.S., it's a little different. There's established funds from major networks and whatnot, and that's how a lot of startups get into the ecosystem. But if we can go back to InGamer for a second and the problem, if we could take like a you know a, yeah. a user centered approach to the problem, like users. Even back then, they didn't want their real-time companion experience for watching television to be dictated to them by the broadcaster. And, and thinking back to my role eight years ago, wow, time has flown by, we were actually focusing more on the long tail of consumption, things that can happen around the broadcast, not during the broadcast, mostly because the broadcast itself was exactly why we existed, that live broadcast. And we, we absolutely did deals with startups. There's so many startups that got acquired and rounds of investment because of the deals that we've done. Now I'm an upstanding uh, corporate citizen and uh, outside of congratulating our vendors on their success, you know, sometimes I, I felt a little bitter. I felt like we were taken advantage of, but when you have sponsors that are putting their money against these initiatives, you know, I'm doing my job. Which is which is really the, the the reward itself, and my career has been fine, even even still uh, with these companies and founders getting exits and and moving on. But that's I think the choice you make when you're when you're in the corporate world versus in the startup world. Both you and I are now in the startup world, so we've obviously ma made our decision. But thinking about in gamer and now moving into when we're going to move into daily fantasy and gambling, we knew we had to do that as part of our conversation today. I, I don't think the reason at scale for people to consume, I'll call it companion branded or monetizable experiences um, came to be because it just wasn't that interesting. I mean, it's hard enough to watch the broadcast, let alone this companion experience to it. So as we bridge the conversation you know, into, into gambling a little bit here, everyone knows what gambling is, but it doesn't matter what country <laughs> you're listening to this from, You know how you do it and where you do it, country to country, region to region. You know that that's kind of the difference. Uh, you know, here Nick and I are in Canada, although we're working on global products. But you know, the average person may not know the options that are available to them, whether they're legal, illegal, gray market, 
There's lots of opportunities for people to play all kinds of, of gambling games. But when it comes to kind of your sweet spot, your Mr. Daily Fantasy Sports, even going back to in-gamer, I'd like to understand in your words, you know, how is daily fantasy sports different from straight up gambling? And what are the, the legal and gray ways that people can play fantasy sports or daily fantasy sports today? So let me, let me, let me just take a quick step back and then I'll hit you here because okay. your tangent was, 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 was actually quite wonderful. Regardless of the business model around in-gamer and why that failed with media companies, the biggest thing that has stopped the companion experience, the second screen experience from ever really catching hold is money. You know, people can play free to play prod people, people will play free to play games for a short period of time. And then what you find is there's a very hardcore, tiny percentage that'll keep engaging other people lose interest because you lose interest when there's nothing at stake. Right. And free to play games uh, ultimately um, as much as the idea makes a ton of sense, uh, the, the, the audience's desire to stay uh, engaged with that product uh, subsides um, when there's nothing really tangible that they can win. I think it's proven, and we all know, that a fantasy sports fan, a sports gambler, will watch games longer because even if a game is a blowout or if it's an uninteresting, you know, if, it, if it's two teams they don't really love, they have something at stake, whether they have a uh, they have a player on their fantasy roster that is playing, or they uh, you know, or, and, and they want to see their their player score points in the fourth quarter of a blowout game, or from a sports gambling perspective, you know, you have money on the game. So you know, I think that you're to to address your question about daily fantasy sports and sports gambling. So daily fantasy sports is the real money gaming offshoot of season long fantasy sports. Now, season-long fantasy sports is the biggest social game that's ever been invented. 60 million North Americans play season-long fantasy sports every year. And for you and your audience, you know, you, you, you get your bunch of buddies, you have a draft at the beginning of the season, you know, you make trades, you know, you chat with your friends. It's, it's, it's a really exciting way and it, and it adds on to the experience of being a, a sports fan, right? You can be your, effectively, you're a general manager of your own team. Right. And you score points based on how the players perform. Super fun. Right. Um, Daily fantasy sports launched, started kind of bubbling up around 2010, 2009, 2010. And I remember as we were thinking about InGamer and the idea of creating this awesome engagement tool, like, you know, you can play fantasy while you're watching the game. Right. It was a perfect adjunct to live broadcast. And this was just as FanDuel and then a company called Draft Street was, was building. Draft Street eventually got bought by DraftKings and, and now it's DraftKings and FanDuel or effectively the two companies that built up the, the DFS industry. I remember as we were building up InGamer and getting it out there, you know, FanDuel and, and, and Draft Street were starting up and it was really intriguing to me, but it was a real money gaming play knowing that and at the time, media companies weren't going to touch it. And that's where that was my DNA. My DNA was media companies. So, you know, the biggest difference between daily for the, the, the difference between daily fantasy sports and sports gambling is, is actually, I mean, it's actually quite clear. Um, daily fantasy sports is a game of skill. 
uh, sports gambling is a game of chance effectively, or it's not even a game. It's uh, a daily fantasy sports um, prescribes to a fantasy sports carve out that was a, a part of a piece of legislation, U.S. legislation in 2006. I won't get into the nuts and bolts, but in order for a contest to be deemed daily fantasy sports, you need to pick multiple players across multiple teams. Um, They're contests that involved uh, statistics that accumulate over, over a period of game. The, the buy-in meaning like the entry fee uh, needs to be fixed and the prize has to be fixed and established at the time of buying. As long as you can create a product that fits within that, uh, the box there's there's you know really th- those three points are the the key uh to this industry then you're deemed daily fantasy sports and you are a game of skill and you're allowed and legal to operate in you know over 40 states in the u.s and in canada um some states require licensing or registration but effectively there's about 40 states where daily fantasy sports is legal um, and so that in, in, in sports betting is a single wager um, that you that a user would make. It would be it could be team based. Um, primarily, it's been team based. I mean, that's the sports gambling market. That's that's how it started, you know, um, all over the world. Now, with with the um, evolution of sports data and the analytic technology that drives a lot of the things that were, you know, the, 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 the data that we're able to see, the stats, uh, player props and player proposition uh, gambling has really uh, jumped up that as an example, that would be, you know, Tom Brady. Uh, will Tom Brady throw for more than 272 and a half yards this weekend in Lambeau Field? I don't mean to date the podcast, but we're, we're shooting it the, you know, the, the Tuesday before the conference finals. So that's effectively a player prop bet and what Monkey Knife Fight has done is we've effectively taken the traditional style of daily fantasy sports um, where users are picking uh, players from across um, rosters of every game that's playing on an individual night. They're using a, a salary cap, like a, basically a, 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 you know, a, an allotment of money to build a particular roster. So it's very math intensive. Uh, in order to um, create a a roster of nine or 10 players to compete. Um, What we've done is we've taken the traditional daily fantasy sports um, product and married it to the emerging player proposition uh, industry. And we've created what we call daily fantasy prop games. Um, So really to bring it all the way back to your first question, the biggest difference is sports gambling is single event single player betting daily fantasy sports involves uh, a much more skill analysis strategy and multiple players multiple teams um that's really the kind of the crux right. difference great answer obviously nick is not your average joe nick, nick is an expert in this especially in the in canada where we're both living i mean a leading voice for this for a decade as we've heard today i want to come back and you're let's just make sure we do i want to come back to the the media side of this yes. before we go there and you, and you touched on, you know, legalities and I want to, I want to take more time and, and deal with that. So everybody at this point is paying attention. You're in the sports business. Doesn't matter which side you're on. Um, you know, we've all been hearing about regulation changing mostly uh, in the United States. 
where state to state it's been opening up and continues to open up. I think by the end of 2021, there's some kind of stat. It seems like most states are. are it's well, been- I wouldn't say most. I think, well, probably by 2023, a majority of U.S. states. Okay. Um, that, yeah, it'll still take some time. So a couple of questions here. So it'll start with this one. Uh, why now has this pace of regulation accelerated? So I, I will, I'll give you my, just my, my read. So the first is um, over the last decade, um, the technology behind PIN and processing has significantly improved. So you can talk about sports gambling all you want, but unless a user can get money onto a site and off a site, securely, quickly, well, what's the point, right? So because the because payment processing became, uh, the technology behind it became better and better, what that enabled, um, well, that enabled companies to do, um, illegal offshore sports betting companies, is it enabled those companies to, to, um, to uh, percolate North American society. Making a sports bet 15 years ago, you needed to go to a, you know, you had a book, you, people had bookies. Gotta right? go to, well, you got to go to Vegas. Or you go to Vegas, go to, Jersey, go to Vegas, to Atlantic to legally, City, yeah. or you, legally, but let's face it, the illegal sports gambling market in North America dwarf, like, was so much bigger than the legal sports gambling market. And it still is. I mean, the reason why the illegal sports gambling market grew so big is because I could go on to the, I can, <laughs> okay, so let's, let's, let's get real, shall we, Mark? We can turn on, let's, let's talk about the hypocrisy of media for a second, okay? Oh, I, I know. I wanted to save media. Okay, okay, <laughs> Later. okay. So, no, no, but. I'm going to let you no, go. No, but we won't. No, no, you, you, you know where, I, where I'm probably going. So let's just put it this way. If the reason why sports gambling, um, why the time is now is because um, the amount of, the amount of illegal sports gambling that's been generated in North America over the last five to 10 years because of the advent of payment processing is staggering. Hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars. Not only now, so clearly there's an appetite for it. One, we want, we want the industry to be regulated because it makes it safer, makes it more secure for users, right? The, the money that most sports gamblers were depositing onto sites were located in China, you know, offshore, Curacao, Antigua, China, right? Not necessarily the most secure banking uh, individuals. Your money's not safe. So you want to regulate an industry to protect the funds of the consumers. You also want to make sure that there are proper, responsible gaming um, mechanisms in place. When people have a, 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 a gambling problem, you think the offshore sports books care if Joe down the street is gambling his life away? Well, they don't care. But as sports gambling becomes regulated and responsible gaming becomes uh, essential, you're going to bring in a layer of protections to, um, to, to, to individuals who would you know, potentially take advantage or, or, or would be taken advantage of. 
Um, most importantly, but so I, I, I believe that consumer protection is extraordinarily important, but let's face it, especially now, based on the pandemic that we've experiencing, there is a significant amount of tax revenue that's going to be able to be generated by the legalization of sports gambling. We're talking about hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars in tax revenues that, let's face it, the government would be able, like, it, it's there. They just have to say yes, and they get it, right? Um, and, let's, and these days, it's, it's even more important in, 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 you know, in the era of, of, this, uh, of, of this pandemic, because let's face it, the government, Canadian government and the U.S. government, there is a need to dole out a significant amount of money to help individuals, small businesses and the kind. And how are the coffers going to get filled? Well, here is, here is something that is, 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 is a very proven an efficient way to bring money into the coffers. And let's face it, if you, Mark Silver, want to make a bet right now, you could go to bodog.com or some other illegal sports site and you can make a bet. And what I was alluding to before, the media companies are supporting this because they will take advertising from bodog.net, not to throw Bodog under the bus, but bodog.net is a free-to-play content site. Well, users are smart, right? They know that for every .net, there's a .com. And so if people are already acknowledging the power of sports gambling, the power of sports gambling content, well, you might as well regulate it, legalize it, and allow tax revenues to flow and consumer protections to get installed. All right. Well said. I know I tempered your your energy <laughs> for the subject. I want to deal with one thing just so just so we crossed, we, we just covered it off. Which is uh, the the dot net thing, and and why why that's relevant, and really what what that's about uh, the free to play game because it's really it's really not about um, just some fun game. It, it it's more than that. So t- maybe give us some insight into into what that all means. So and this is Canadian. Um, Canadian-based, I mean, to a certain degree, U.S.-based as well in, in states where sports gambling is not legal. But a media company um, is not permitted to advertise or take sponsor money um, from a real money, from, any, uh, from a, a, an illegal real money gaming site, right? Sports gambling is illegal right now, today in Canada. So a Canadian media company is not permitted by law to advertise a real money gaming site. But, and here is the hypocritical rub. If a real money gaming site throws a new little URL.net.org, whatever, or .org is for for charities or for -for not-for-profits, and that site has no links to the real money side. So if you go to, and I apologize to to, to Bodog, they're they're an incredible industry-leading branding company that have built that have helped spark the growth of an amazing business. I do so love the apology, Nick. You're, you're no, foreshadowing. And, and, <laughs> no, and it's not really. I'm not apologizing for Bodog. Good for them. They built a great business. I'm more angered at the hypocrisy of Canadian media regulations and law and the CRTC. Um, so, as an example, let's use um, uh, FuriousGeorge.com, FuriousGeorge.net. FuriousGeorge.com is a real money gaming site that's not legal in Canada, FuriousGeorge.net. 
wants to do a promotion and a sponsorship with a Canadian media company. So we build furiousgeorge.net. On that site, there's articles, there's free to play games. On that site, there is no link to furiousgeorge.com. On that site, there is no reference to furiousgeorge.com. On that site, there is no way for a user to actually make a wager. Um, so technically, by Canadian regu regulations, that site is a content site and thus can pay for a sponsorship through a Canadian media company. But are you telling me that a user who is on furiousgeorge.net, who's reading the article about what sports bets they're going to make tonight, doesn't think to them themselves, oh, I think there's a furiousgeorge.com. I'm not going to go there. No, that, that, that doesn't make any sense to me. Come on, man. Like it, it, it really does boggle my mind. Um, and, and the reality is to convert, um, you know, building a, a, a gaming brand is, is about brand. You want to get your brand out there in front of as many people as possible. Right. So this is like a, um, a circumvention of how, how I think companies really should act within this realm. I think that if that law or if that, um, if that um, angle didn't exist, I, no pun intended, um, or maybe pun intended, I bet Canadian media companies would have invested a lot more in the sports startup and technology ecosystem when it came, when it came to gaming uh, because they wouldn't have been able to cash the easy check from these .NET companies. Well, I mean, to be fair, I mean, there is there is one Canadian entity, the the Score, which which is doing that. Now they are uh, they are no, but the Score the Score only launched sports gambling. You know, the Score launched sports gambling in the U.S. this past year, and you know, kudos to them. But you don't see the Score bet being advertised in Canada right now, right? No, they listen, can't. Those are those are savvy, sophisticated operators. Let's talk for a bit about about Canada and and what's happening. So as as we're recording this podcast, um, it is still illegal for single game bets. There is no legal online sports betting in this country. There is of course uh, retail offline sports betting. Proline for those of yep. you who know what that is, that you can you still can only do that, you know, at your local convenience store or gas bar. Um, but things are changing and so let's assume that the criminal code will decriminalize single game sports betting let's not even talk about that let's talk for a second about you know the provincial gaming operators um and and how they're going to uh, address the need in in the marketplace they've had a virtual monopoly on all online forms of gaming up until now in this country legal forms we know that offline is a little different with casinos and and uh and horse tracks, they've, they've, they've been allowed to operate in a little bit of a license model. What, what do you see happening in Canada? So, I mean, I think, I think sports gambling is going to be legalized. Single event sports gambling is going to be legalized. And I think it, I think it will happen in 2021. Um, the most, the most, so as, as you said, gaming and sports gaming um, has been um, ruled by the provincial lotteries. Right, BCLC, OLG, Atlantic Lottery Commission. Um, what was very interesting when the legislation was was first introduced and uh, it was being discussed, uh, it looks like nothing is nothing is official or 
but it looks like we'll use Ontario as the example. Looks like what they're going to do is single sports betting is they're going to give the authority to oversee it to the AGCO, which is the Alcohol and Gaming Corporation of Ontario, not um, the OLG. Which means it will be a multiplayer market, which is a which is very good news for everybody. Monopolies are never uh, monopolies stunt innovation. We want innovation. We want great products. We want to you know we want we we don't want to. Um, be beholden just to the the, the 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 kind of the management of one. Um, so I think that's a, that's that's a very good sign. Um, it's going to be very interesting to see how the Canadian market shakes out because there are um, unlike the U. I, I think Canadian market will be province by province, um, similar to I think how the U.S. is 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 rolling out state by state. I think the Canadian government is definitely looking at the U.S. and how. Uh, they've structured their uh, their regulations and their and their process. I think they're going to emulate that as much as possible, um, and it's working. Um, the interesting thing about Canada versus the U.S. is the predominance of two major media companies and how they dominate sports and sports culture in Canada. Um, uh, you know, unlike the U.S., the U.S. there are many regional operators. There's not just there isn't a uh, a TSN and a Sportsnet, and not only that, there isn't a TSN and a Sportsnet that are also owned by the two biggest media conglomerates in the country, and right? Two, two biggest telcos in the country as well. well that's it, and mm -hmm. pockets in this country. Well, and it gets even further complicated because they each, or because <clears throat> there's ownership stake in professional sports teams in those companies. So the easy answer when it comes to sports gambling and how it would shake out in Canada is, okay, as an example, Rogers will launch their own sports betting platform. They will own the airwaves. They will be able to push their brand and they will win. But because of their ownership stake in the Leafs and the Raptors and the Blue Jays, that adds a level of complication. So... I think that it's going to be, there's going to be a number of groups that are going to come into this country. Uh, they will get regulated. There'll be a full regulatory process. Um, the way that it typically works in states is that a, a state will issue a number of, of sports betting licenses or skins to pre-existing regulated brick and mortar casino operators typically. So in an individual state, a casino, a casino operators will be given let's say three skins as an example. It varies from state to state. And what they're able to do with those skins is then sell them to partners um, or other groups to launch uh, um, online um, applications. So it's unclear yet what's going to happen in Canada, how many skins will be available, what the licensing process will be like. But in Canada, there's a number of established brands already. You mentioned the score. The Levies are geniuses. Right. Uh, I have a, a, such a, a world of respect for what they've built. They have an incredible product. They have an incredible brand. They, as you've alluded to, they have launched a, their sports betting uh, business in the U.S. Um, They're publicly traded. You know, as of today, I mean, their stock is going crazy. The, the public markets around sports gambling in North America have exploded since DraftKings. Uh, DraftKings had an IPO in May and it went bonkers. And now the entire industry is exploding, which is is great uh, it's very exciting um so the, so canadians are very familiar with the score brand the question is will they bet with the score app 
it remains to be seen, right? The, the, the most difficult thing to convince a user to do is to deposit money into an account. The score, lots of people have the score app, converting a free user to a pay user, it's not easy. It's complicated. Um, and they're, they're, they're working, they're learning. So I think the score are, the score has a good shot if they, um, if they, if they figure out that, that proper switch. Now there's a company, there's another gaming company, another major gaming company that owns, and I won't, I won't get into too many specific names, but there's a, there's a major gaming company that also owns a, um, a poker site. And in Canada, there are over two and a half million users or so of this poker site that are, is owned within the sports gaming conglomerate. Um, this, when this sports gaming conglomerate gets a license to, um, to, to, to provide sports gambling in Canada, they will have two and a half million or so Canadians with funded accounts already on their platform. That is a massive head start. Um, typically, the provincial lottery corporations move very slowly when it comes to digital innovation. We don't need to, you know, they're similar to media companies in Canada. They're big, huge, you know, you can, you can, you can draw a parallel to like a freighter in the ocean. It takes... Oh, we don't have to pour salt on them. They know exactly <laughs> no. how slow they move. That's right. So digital innovation is not easy. I will say BCLC has got, um, they, they've got a really great, they've got a really good digital product. So I could see the BCLC really having a really leaning into uh, sports gambling and having some good national uh, success. OLG is, is, a, is an incredible business that has incredible brand recognition, especially in Ontario. Um, they will be players, obviously, as well. I, I, I think that this country is I think it's 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 going to be really really interesting to see what happens in this country and I don't mean to cop out but I think it's really going to dictate on what what the two big media companies decide to do because ultimately it's going to become all about branding and marketing how do you get your sports betting application uh, downloaded and funded by as many Canadians as possible and let's face it if a tree falls in the forest and nobody's around does it make a sound you can have the greatest sports betting app there is, but if you don't have advertising um, in front of the eyeballs of the most you know, avid sports fan, it's going to be very hard to get market share. And let's face it, Canadians watch their favorite teams on Sportsnet, on TSN, uh, through Bell and Rogers. So the decisions that those two companies make will, I think, have more influence on how the sports betting landscape evolves in Canada than any other two companies there are. I completely agree with you on that. There was something you said there, and I just, for the sake of the audience and my own understanding, I wanted to just make sure I got it right. So you were mentioning at the BC Lottery, um, certainly services, the residents of British Columbia. Are you suggesting that uh, when they have their online sports betting platform, that that will be available to residents in Canada outside of BC? I, I don't see, I don't see why not. They would have to, the BCLCs, you know, would need to, you know, get a formal approval from the different provinces, just like any other, just like any other company would. I don't see why other provinces potentially wouldn't even want to partner with 
other groups that have compelling technology. That's right. I mean, we've seen it with Lotto 649 for, again, those Canadians listening where it is a, yep. it is a national lottery as are a few, uh, a few other pieces. Of, okay. Very interesting. Listen, I don't, uh, we could spend all day talking about this. <laughs> I, I do want to get to another question, kind of our last sure. question before our, uh, our lightning round. Um, so Nick, uh, let's project forward, whatever the number is five, let's go five years, 10 years is way too far. So <laughs> thinking backwards, we've already seen all kinds of consolidation, you know, in our time, you know, since the, the dawn of the internet, uh, telecommunications companies, obviously tech companies, media companies, what do you see happening in online sports betting as it relates to consolidation and quite frankly, failures. Um, and we'll, we'll try to keep the answer short. We know our, our time with the audience is running on here. I think that consolidation um, is, I mean, it's already started, right? Um, I think that when you look at the states, you look at some of the sports gambling companies, um, PointsBet did a big deal with NBC. There are media companies and sports betting companies are starting to understand that um, sports gambling and media and digital are all the intertwined experience of a sports gamer, a sports fan. Uh, I think the best example that you're seeing right now in the States is, is a group called um, Bally's. So what Bally's did a deal to acquire a sports betting backend platform, Betworks. Ironically, Betworks is the backend platform for the score, the scores betting app. Um, Bally's then did, did a deal with Sinclair. Um, Sinclair um, owns um, over 20 Fox regional sports networks. So now what you have is you have a, and Bally's also owns over 10 you know, brick and mortar casinos across the US. Uh, Bally's is part of the Sinclair deal. And this is all, you can search it online. Bally's is renaming the Sinclair RSNs, the Bally Sports Network. So already you're starting to see, okay, well, I have a sports fan. I'll just use a, a monkey knife fight example because the Milwaukee Brewers were our very first partner and I have a huge, I'm a big fan of the Milwaukee Brewers and there's a Fox regional sports network in Wisconsin. So you're watching the Milwaukee Brewers on the Valley Sports Network and um, when sports gambling is legal in Wisconsin, it's not yet legal in Wisconsin, but they're a long play, like you said, five years down the road. So five years from now, you're watching the Brewers on the Valley Sports Network and uh, Keston Hira is coming up to bat. You can go to your Bally's bet app powered by Betworks that's on integrated into broadcast, potentially integrated onto your smart TV via your app or your remote control. And you're able to make a bet on whether Keston Hira is going to get a hit, strikeout, or walk. That is what. I believe the future of sports gambling and the experience of a sports fan is going to be, it will be a fully integrated experience where um, sports betting, sports watching um, are intertwined through your phone, your remote, what have you. So I do think that, and I think that those are the experiences that are going to be the most um, impactful so I do think that you're going to start seeing many more deals like that, where media, technology um, come together to really harness, let's face it, the power of the sports fan, which 
let's say is the only reason why people are paying for cable these days, right? Um, you oh, know, yeah, I pretty much canceled every other every other service except that. And we don't have time to unpack the comment I'm about to make, but but I think it's important. I, w- I want to get it out there. And if you're jumping just like out of your past answer, it I will let you. But what you're again, you're, you're doing a great job of foreshadowing. You're a great storyteller, Nick. Um, when you talk about that experience, you're talking about a connected experience. And right now, there's generally three or four companies. Obviously, Apple, Google, Roku. You can say Sony through the the, the PS. Dude, Five, Amazon, Amazon Xbox. broadcast NFL games, right? Well, a- Amazon, yeah, but they they're not in the platform business. I mean, they they True. do have the Fire and others, but they're not. They don't control the consumer the way that some of those other companies do. So I am very curious to see what those companies think about sports betting on their platform, because the future that you're that you're telling us about is a future where we don't really have a set top box anymore, not this dumb box. Uh, what we really have is one experience that is delivered through one of those platform companies that will deliver the broadcast, which they're already doing. And we'll also deliver the betting platform, which they're not doing yet. So we don't have enough answers or enough time to prognosticate around that. But very interesting to see how that plays out. Just considering some of what we're hearing today as we're recording this, you know, around how Facebook is you know, fighting apparently for their survival because of some rules to privacy that Apple is changing. Anyway, we'll leave it at that unless you feel so compelled to, to say something. No, uh, the the only thing I'll say is the amount of money that exists in the ecosystem of creating or creating experiences that that stimulate a sports fan to watch till the end of a game adds more sponsor revenue, more engagement and betting revenue. Like there is there's a lot of there's a lot of motivating factors to create this connected experience that you alluded to. All right. That ends the scheduled programming uh, for today. We do have a few questions that we do like to ask every guest that we'll, we'll, we'll get in as part of our talk with you today, even though we are sure. running slightly longer than normal. Hopefully, uh, hopefully everyone will stay with us to get the remainder of the insights that, that Nick has to provide. So Nick, uh, what's your most memorable career moment uh, so far? Wow, I was not ready. I was not ready for this question. Man, the most memorable career moment. So recently with Monkey Knife Fight, we did a deal with the National Football League Players Association and a group called One Team Partners. I started working and thinking about that partnership um, a year and a half, about a year and a half before it came to fruition. I started working with a, a, a with with a with a great guy, and I'll I'll name check him, Ricky Medina, who was working at the NFLPA. Um, and it took us, and then one team was created, and 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 one team is a is a partnership between Redbird Capital, the NFL Players Association, MLBPA, and a number of other players associations. Ricky went there, and we kept we started talking, we kept going, kept going. And October, that deal came to fruition, and we we signed it, where the NFLPA through one team uh, became partners, formal partners of MKF. I think that was one of the most proud moments, mainly because it was a it was a deal that um, it was a deal that we had been thinking about and talking about for so long. It was it was like um, I, I I can't I can't put the you know the what's the what's the word I'm looking for. Um, 
uh, like lengthy gratification or whatever. Anyway, uh, it was it was great. I've been waiting for that for a long time, but I do think that from from a career perspective, when in game my very first startup, when we signed our deal with Hockey Night in Canada, and that very first broadcast, I remember my co-founder. We were in our house. The first Hockey Night in Canada game was up, and our app was live, and people were playing that night. That was because I was a media guy for a long time. Then I transitioned to be a tech entrepreneur to see that actually happen um, and to kind of live that like that adrenaline rush. Uh, that that's also something I'll I'll never forget. It's like birth and the baby, right? Who who at CBC was the one who championed in gamer? I want I want to get their name on here for the record. So Steve Billinger was a major yeah. champion. Um, uh, we worked really closely with Dan Tavares um, as of well. Of course. Um, and I mean, they're just great guys. Steve was a big champion. And that was, you know, Alan Dark um, was also there at the time and, and Scott Moore. Um, but Steve was the guy who really, really championed this thing. And then I think when I started working with Dan and then Stephen Boyd, uh, man, I haven't, I haven't talked to Stephen in forever. Um, those two guys really championed um, in gamer um, internal. But yeah, Steve, Steve was a uh, Steve was a pioneer, man. He was he's he's a great guy. All right, well, he's a great follow on Instagram, by the no, way. No, no, I've met Steve. He's terrific. <laughs> you you've also mentioned a bunch of names which I haven't had on the on the podcast yet. Certainly, people from their organizations where they work today, but not those guys. So if um, thinking about your career, and we we talked so much about how you kind of had the same outlook, uh, whether it was battling cancer or startup or all of those things, you kind of have told us you stayed the same, but I don't completely believe you. So if you think back way kind of the beginning of the career and kind of today, um, when you think about your mindset, is there, is there anything that, that has really changed from, if you can remember way back when? Uh, yes. Um, I was a lot more fearful to stand up for my ideas, stand up to partners. Um, you know, it, this, is, this is a really, really tough one because um, there are other personalities at play in what I'm about, you know, in what I'm talking about. There were decisions that were made years ago when I was running a startup. Looking back, you know, hindsight's 2020. It's impossible, you know, to go back in time. But there were decisions that were made decades ago or a decade ago or more that at the time I knew was wrong. I knew it wasn't the right thing to do, but because I was too shit scared to confront a partner or, uh, you know, whether it's, a, you know, a, a business partner or a business or like, or like a, like an internal partner or an external partner, because I was too scared to express what I really felt and what I wanted to fight for. Um, Ultimately, the wrong decision was made and I suffered the consequences for it. So I think what I've learned now, and it kind of goes to the give zero fucks, it's like, I don't, respectfully, I don't care what you think of me. I don't care about what happened yesterday. I care about what's going to happen tomorrow, what's going to happen in the next moment. This is what I think. I passionately believe this. If we disagree, then we need to work it out because this is what we're going to do. Um, so I, I think that that's really the thing that's changing me the most is I've just, 
you know, I've, I've gained a lot more comfort in, in, in pissing people off. Right. I mean, I'm, I'm someone that I've always wanted everyone to like me. That's just part of the kind of person. I no, that's our upbringing. That's what our moms told us. Well, and, and to be honest, I was a, uh, I was an, a chubby, shy um, teenager. I moved from Los Angeles to Montreal when I was 13, when I was 13 and I went to an all boys school. Um, I didn't know any girls. I was very shy and, and, and insecure for, for a long, long time. I think that that has helped me because ultimately what that's done is it, it, it has made me uh, a lot more comfortable on my own skin now that I've broken out of my shell. Uh, and and, and, and you know, I won't get into the reasons of how I broke out of my shell, but the need for people to constantly like me, is always kind of, it, it plagued me. Uh, now I think it's a benefit because it's just, it, it's made my personality a little more outgoing, but it did negatively impact my early stages in business because like I said, confrontation scared me and now it doesn't. Now I really don't give a shit how um, our, our relationship is going to progress. I'm a good person. I'm going to respect you. Our opinions are, are wrong, are differing. This is why I think we should do this. And if you don't agree with me, then convince me I'm wrong or come along or get off the fucking boat. No pun intended. Right. Well, listen, 20, 20 years in, um, respectfully, you, you, you can be this way. I am certainly not as extreme as you are with some of these points of view, but you know, looking forward and not looking back and, you know, letting grudges go and let bygones be bygones. I mean, you, you, you got to do that. Life is too short. We have all these other priorities. So final, final question. Uh, and it, your advice is going to be different than give zero fucks. Okay, please. Of course. Um, if you have advice to people, and I'm going to frame this, that are looking to get into, let's just call it sports betting, sports fantasy world, this engagement side of clearly the future of the sports industry. Um, what advice do you have for those, you know, 20, 25 year olds, male, female, I don't really, it doesn't really matter uh, if they're looking to get into this space. Um, so I, I would say focus a little bit on what specific in specifically you're interested in, in the space. Um, you know, whether you want to be on the content side, on the technology side, on the sales side, you know, think about what really excites you about this industry. Um, and then find people in the industry that you think could, um, that you can get, get advice from and don't be shy, you know, if you don't ask, you don't get. I say that a lot also, right? You can't be scared of no. Um, I, 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 like, I like when people reach out to me. Um, unfortunately, my time these days, I've, been, I've become a little bit more busy, but I've had a number of people over the last year because of some podcasts that I've been on or because of articles or whatever it is, they reach out to me on LinkedIn. LinkedIn is an incredible tool. Oh my goodness, I, I love LinkedIn. And you know, a number of folks have reached out to me and I'm happy to, uh, when I can find the time, I'm happy to talk to them, provide advice, but it's not as though I'm gonna get, you know, you're gonna get a job or I'm gonna recommend you to a friend. Like be prepared to do a little bit of work. What I've said to people is I'm happy to talk. I'm happy to give you my insights of how you can get into the industry. And then what I say to a lot of these people, it's okay, give me a paragraph or two of, of, of really what you wanna do. And this is more of a test to see if these people are actually willing to work. Right. It's, 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 I don't, I actually care less about what they say as opposed to them just really thinking about saying what they and thinking about what they want. And then, you know, 
I, I love introducing people to, to others, whether it's companies that are looking for funding. And I know people like it, it's connectivity and, 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 and that's what networking is all about. So my biggest advice to people is don't be shy, right? The worst thing that you're going to get is a no. Guess what? Oh my goodness. I've heard, I mean, you hear no all the time. You know, things don't work. You hear no, you got to brush it off and keep moving forward because occasionally you get a yes. But that yes is never a, okay, you got a job or okay, here you go. It's the, the smart yeses, the right yeses will come with some more thought and some more work, right? And I think that's my biggest advice for people is just don't be shy, be persistent. Um, and, and if you want something, just go get it, but be prepared to work for it. And for our loyal listeners out there, um, you know that we've heard similar advice from from numerous guests on the podcast that you gotta you gotta put yourself out there. And even though you might not get the answer you want out of someone like Nick, you gotta think of it as a journey, a long game, a stepping stone that you're gonna take something away from that interaction. I have taken a lot away from our interaction today, Nick. I know that our talk was uh, long overdue too long, but you had to go and create monkey knife fight. So I, I gave you the space and room to do that. And I look forward to using this opportunity to be more in touch with you on a regular basis. I hope, uh, hope you uh, will do the same. Well, Mark, uh, you know, I'm not shy and you know where to find me. And I got to tell you, it's been a real pleasure um, having this chat. It's, it's refreshing, as you said, to not go through the car wash of the same questions that people can find by Googling, right? So no, I, I, this was a real, it was a real fun exercise and your questions really, uh, really got me to think. So, you know, kudos to you, man. I think you've got a really good platform here. The Backstage Project Podcast is brought to you by Ready, Set, Go. They help organizations create extraordinary digital products. To learn more, go to readysetgo.design. If you would like to get in touch with Mark and the team at the Backstage Project Podcast, please email us at info at tpbpodcast.com.